0: the title of this talk is about the new guest worker um the the, this is not new so basically i want to look at particularly australia because that's where i'm from and i'm um more familiar obviously with this jurisdiction but um obviously around the world today we have a number of um um, industrialized liberal democratic countries ranging from canada to germany to the uk that also deploy um, these temporary migration programs so the first point to make is that these programs, these schemes, are not new. In a way, we can think back to even the turn of the century. So in Australia, we actually had—this is actually not a picture of Australia; it's from it's from a Flemish painting. But um, the in Australia in the 19th century, um, some of the Australians here may know that we actually imported um, Polynesians and Pacific Islanders, Kanakas, uh, uh, on these indentured um, labor contracts um, for three years. There was laws, immigration laws, that regulated their working conditions and their um, basically repatriation after those three years was over. And so it's not a new idea to import labor on a temporary basis. Um, and of course, part of that import- importation was the tiring of these workers, these migrant workers, to an employer or a la- or a master um, back in back in the 19th century, that um, other groups of workers um, were not subject to that sort of control. So um, then we had, um, I guess, forwarding to you know post-war um, large-scale guest worker schemes that were used in Western Europe and North America. That um, imported um, millions of workers, um, migrant workers, on a temporary basis under these guest worker programs. And that was very much state-directed. So the government saw that, okay, we need to re- reconstruct our, our labour markets, our economy, and so uh, we wanted to import labour. But as the um, famous Swiss philosopher Marx and uh, Max Frisch once said, um, you know, we tried to import labor where human beings came. And that was a very poignant reflection of um, the unintended consequences of these guest worker programs, um, where migrants from, um, you know, poorer, ascending countries would come with, with, you know, the state thinking, the whole state thinking they only come for a few years, but of course... Um, they stayed on. And so those programs in the 1950s and 60s were deemed as failures in the sense that these um, migrants who are subject to a range of restrictions on their rights um, essentially became permanent, uh, whether they were regularised under um, specific legal migration programs or they stayed on in um, illegal kind of manners and channels. So that brings us to sort of today's, um, okay I'm not getting this, (laughs) there we go, today's um, temporary migration program. So we've seen how it's moved from indentured labor to sort of the post-war government run programs to today where we have employer driven um, programs. So in Australia I'm sure the Australians in this room are familiar with the 457 visa Um, 457 visa scheme is the primary, the centerpiece of the labour migration programs in Australia today, which is quite a break from um, its tradition of permanent resident. Um, So um, Australia, like Canada, have generally favoured um, attracting skilled migrants um, from the rest of the world under permanent um, residence programs. But what's been back in vogue um, is actually we see these temporary programs as in captured in the 457 visa regime where, um, take an example, if Michael comes to Australia as an academic, um, any of you who who don't have Australian nationality, come to say, my old university, University of Sydney, as an academic, you would be issued um, a visa that could last up to four years, Um, it could be renewed After four years, you can apply for permanent residence, but that is not guaranteed. Um, You are sponsored by the University of Sydney, and um, it becomes quite difficult to change employers, um, sort of also obviously depending on the economic circumstances. You might want to move to Monash or Melbourne. Uh, I don't know why, because Sydney, the weather's always like this. Uh, sorry, Melbourne. But um, certainly, um, you know, you are essentially, even as a skilled worker, which is these programs only admit skilled workers. But what is skilled is also contestable because under this scheme, there's been um, cooks and, and hairdressers and a range of different skills um, or semi skilled and low skilled um, workers that have come under this scheme because it's really employer driven. Um, So, we come to this paradigm where um, temporary migration programs across the world are now seen as, oh, it's really sexy again. And um, this particular paradigm is centralized on this claim that these (coughs) guest worker programs can bring um, economic and labor market benefits for this whole state. also economic benefits for the sending states, um, so poor sending states often in the developing world in terms of economic remittances, but also from the perspective that you know um, the, the, the sort of debates about um, brain drain. So the fact that these programs are temporary um, somehow um, sort of you know makes us think that okay, these skilled migrants will go back to their countries, um, poor ascending countries, will still be able to retain their best and brightest. Um, And then finally, it's said to be a win for migrant workers themselves because they get a legal channel of migrating to, um, you know, a a richer um, host country for their livelihood rather than uh, migrating illegally. And that, um, you know, creates... um, more problems in terms of they're more vulnerable to exploitation so um, it's said to be a win for also migrants and their families so my doctoral thesis um, at Oxford um, which I completed last summer looked really at that last claim for migrant workers um, whether it is really a win for them Um, and so that takes me to my kind of where where I come from, really, in terms of, I'm as I've said earlier, I'm not a philosopher or an ethicist. This actually may be quite new to you, but I really hope that you find it interesting and, of course, very topical in terms of immigration constantly in the headlines. Um, and, you know, as I've said, I am a labour lawyer um, come immigration lawyer. Uh, when I was in Australia, I practised in industrial law. Um, I've, you know done a lot of advocacy for migrant workers. And so I came to this topic as a labor lawyer. Um, immigration law uh, was quite new to me at the time I started my thesis. And for me, what was really interesting in looking at the regulation of labor migration is basically where these two bodies of law um, collided, intersected and collide. And so we recognized um, in labor law, that among many different objectives, one of the primary objectives of labor law is to uh, is how it has a strong worker-protective dimension. So um, Otto Kahn-Fraud is sort of seen as the godfather of, of labor law um, in, in, in sort of Western Europe for the 20th century. He supervised my supervisor, and he has this classic line about the purpose of labor law, which is to address the inherent inequalities in bargaining power in the employment relationship between the employer and the worker, uh, which is um, inevitable, uh, but needs to be addressed. So it has a very strong worker protective dimension, but it has taken on different types of aims and objectives um, in recent decades. So, um, you know, labor law, if you you look at the, the rhetoric of this conservative government, and also, the government um, of Tony Blair was that labor law had an f- additional function, which is to make market, uh, which is to enhance market flexibility, labor market flexibility, um, and and sort of um, being given a market, a sort of market efficiency um, objective as well. But my, um, you know, in terms of labor law scholars, um, we start with the premise that fundamentally, labor law is has a very strong worker protective dimension. Now that comes into inevitable conflict with immigration law, um, where uh, immigration law um, as a body, as a body of law, is more concerned about regulating the numbers of migrants, who we admit, the conditions that we admit. And in terms of labor migration, um, immigration law creates this division. So um, you are admitted into the UK or Australia based on whether you have the right to be in that country which is essentially your nationality okay and so it's not so much concerned about protecting workers um, it has um, concerns about um you know protecting say the state's um political and economic and social interests you know controlling migration if you read the daily mail um is about often the numbers of migrants, whether they're from the, e, from the EU or from outside the EU. Um, you know, It's about controlling the, the conditions on which they enter the country. Um, so whether you know, you're know you a skilled migrant, or you're a student, um, or you're a working holiday maker. So it controls the conditions of their entry and of their residence. How long is this visa? Are you allowed to be in this country? Um, and so... Um, it's not really concerned with, obviously, labor laws, primarily worker-protective aims. And so um, this idea of um, immigration laws creating certain vulnerabilities um, within the employment relationship by distorting the actual employment relationship is what I my research was interested in. And it comes from, basically, immigration law being able to construct what we call migrant status. so. Um, you know, at the moment, I'm an academic visitor um, to to the University of Oxford. Um, I'm a na- Australian nationality. Um, of Australian nationality. Um, the status that creates I'm a temporary visitor. I don't have the right to work, so the University of Oxford cannot pay me. I'm only here for well, I'm only here very briefly. But on my visa, it um, I can only you know be in this country for six months. Now, with temporary migration um, programs, for example, the Tier Two, which I was um, Formerly, on I, I was I, I was a lawyer um, in the UK for about a year, and that restricted me in the sense of I only had a two or three-year um, visa restriction, so that limits me to only temporary jobs or jobs that are not permanent, right? And same with students. So the students in this room were not from the EU or UK. You have a regulation of I think it's 20 hours a week. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So that limits you, obviously, to certain types of jobs. So we see that immigration controls actually um, has a very powerful function in segmenting the labour market and creating these personal statuses um, that distorts um at least you know, the standard employment relationship, which we um, we sort of consider in labor law as sort of the full-time permanent um, model. Of course, that's been eroded away uh, because of the nature of um, uh, labor market restructuring. Most of us today, even as workers with the right to work in this country or to live in this country, may find ourselves, in any case, in temporary precarious jobs. So, um, But... I'm interested specifically in how immigration controls um, further divides um, that existing labour market segmentation by distorting the employment relationship. So that's how I came up with these two analytical concepts, hyperdependence and the other one is precarity, which I'll go into in a second. I understand this is probably, um, in this room there are probably not many lawyers and, and probably no labor lawyers or immigration lawyers. So I, I guess I, I'll just just briefly try and describe what I mean by these two concepts, which helps to identify the most problematic immigration controls associated with these temporary migration schemes or guest worker schemes. Um, so this idea of dependence in um, employment relations really um, tries to capture how um, I am Mimi I'm an employee of Chinese University of um, Hong Kong, or say, Mark, we engage you as an independent consultant, um, that is a different type of relationship, contractual relationship. The notion of dependence in labour law is a distinguishing characteristic between the sort of contractual relationship I have with my university as an employer, as opposed to Mark, who is engaged as a consultant. I am subordinate, I am dependent on my employer for control over what I do as an academic, and as well as that for, for the income. So Mark, um, you know, in terms of contractual relations, he is an independent contractor. So he's a, a provider of services. Um, it is distinct from me who is dependent on my employer uh, within an employment relationship. Now, that distinction is important when we come to hyperdependence because um, hyperdependence goes beyond this conventional sense that, I'm, um, that the employer is just basically controlling what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, it is about, in the context of migration controls, this tiring, tiring tethering and um, tying my status, my legal authorisation to work and to 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 live in um, in the host country to that particular employment relationship. So it goes well beyond the conventional kind of dependence that as a local worker um, that I have with the employer. Because I don't have this tie, you see, that comes from my precarious migrant status. Um, And so that goes even further, sort of you have independence and Marxism. He doesn't need the university because he's got other sources of income from other um, other sources. Um, Then there's me that depends on the employer, um, and then there's the temporary migrant worker who is tied to say the University of Sydney under a 457 visa, um, who depend on the University of Sydney as his or her employer to be able to live in that country, in Australia. Okay, so that is really a hyperdependence that goes beyond the conventional employment relationship. Um, Hyperprecarity is the other analytical concept I developed um, to describe um, how immigration will create certain vulnerabilities in migrants' employment relationships. And that's really about um, the tenuous nature of these workers' entitlements to employment and social protections. So let's put it sort of, let's give it some kind of reach um, 457 visas, for example. So um, if you're a 457 visa holder, the your duration of employment is based on your visa. So say, I, as the Australian government, I grant you a three-year visa. Um, your employment relationship at the end of that three years will be terminated, because unless the employer wants to sponsor you again, okay? If the employer decides to terminate your um, sponsorship, um, terminate your employment, um, say, after six months, okay? Um, you, you basically have, um, under the old rules, was one month to leave the country or find a new employer or go on another visa. Now, one month to basically try and maintain your ability to remain, your, your legal right to remain in the country is quite difficult. Particularly in the hard economic times, where finding a new employer to sponsor you is um, you know, a challenge, um, and as the employer, um, you know, you have enormous control over um, over the migrant workers' um, you know, ability to stay in the country. And so, if you want to say, um, put yourself in a position, even as a skilled worker, um, the employer threatens to um, uh, basically fire you, and then say you're going to, you know, basically you have to leave the country. 28 days within 28 days of me terminating. Employment relationship because your visa sponsorship under the rules mean that you have to find another sponsor or leave. Um, say you have a claim for unpaid wages or um, you know uh, you want to join a trade union, okay? Uh, but the employer is threatening you with you with with that sort of uh, threat. It means that it's really hard to actually access the protections um, under labor law, which is guaranteed to both migrant worker and resident worker. So Australian labor law doesn't say, oh, here's a set of law for migrant workers. Here's a set of law for resident workers. You know, in liberal democratic societies, I guess the um, the premise for, say, labor law um, is that it applies regardless of your nationality. Of course, immigration law, as I try and show um, in these concepts, means that you cannot enforce these laws in practice. But beyond that, it actually also means that um, we're not talking about a case of being a legal migrant. We're talking about a case of a migrant who's come into the country under these guest worker programs um, who can lose that status overnight. So if the, the employer breaches a visa condition, you know, for example, doesn't submit the paperwork or makes me work extra hours or pay me below minimum wage, then they could be in breach of their sponsorship obligations, which is controlled by immigration law. Okay? And then I could become a regular just overnight. And that subjects me to um, even more obstacles in terms of um, being able to enforce my um, employment protections. So even as a skilled worker. So in that sense, the hyper-precarity tries to capture that role of immigration controls in creating an additional kind of um, dimension of precarity. Okay, so precarity from labour law's perspective generally refers to the jobs that are temporary, to jobs that have low income, um, to to jobs that have no job security. So um, this is an extra dimension, and and jobs that um, the regulatory protections are limited. Um, So this takes it to another level, hence the hyper. Um, So what does this mean in terms of, um, I guess, what what, um, your your expertise can bring to the table in terms of the moral and ethical considerations. I'm not suggesting here that we abandon these guest worker programs, because I recognise that these programs have been very much entrenched in the current political um, policy discourse in the number of um, industrialised um, receiving countries. to advocate for their complete abandonment is just not realistic or feasible. And there's a lot of debates um, from political philosophers um, and economists about whether we should have these programs. Um, and I, I, while I, you know, it's tempting to engage in those debates, I guess my starting point is that um, these programs are here to stay, at least for the time being. Uh, we're not going to see Australia or the UK or Canada um, basically, removing these schemes and then only leaving with uh, leaving you know migrants, potential migrants with permanent residence programs or nothing, and then nothing obviously refers to then um, you know the expand the, the possibility for greater irregular migration, um, which um, you know is even uh, prob- more problematic for enforcing your labor rights as a, a legal migrant. So from that starting point. Um, I also recognize, drawing back on the division of labor law and migration law, that states do have the right um, and the prerogative to, um, I guess, um, set out immigration programs like these guest worker programs. So I'm not gonna engage in that debate about open borders and closed borders. Okay. That might be interesting for the discussion, but I, I'm, maybe I'm just a pragmatist. I just kind of recognize that we are working with a paradigm of triple win how can we address, using these two concepts, identify the most problematic aspects um, of these um, immigration controls that are associated with these guest worker programs with respect to their intrusion on the worker protective aims of labour law. So I suggest that um, this paradigm of exit and voice as sort of guiding principles, if if you might say, for changing the current design of these schemes. Um, And I think the ability for a migrant worker on a 457 visa or an equivalent um, in other countries um, is the importance of being able to exit an employment relationship. Um, The freedom, it's just like the freedom to work for the employer that you want or in the job that you want. um, You know, it's something that's quite seen as a fundamental right for labour lawyers. Um, The ability to exit, to quit your job, is quite fundamental. Um, and under these schemes, I guess the tiring of your um, right to live in a country to um, you know a particular employer sponsorship limits those options for you to exit the employment relationship. And the second dimension is voice. Um, again, for labor lawyers, voice is very important. Um, and it's not just about, um, you know, the ability to uh, voice grievances in enforcing your labour rights. I think in this particular um, political economy that we live in today, um, voice also entails a collective dimension. So the ability to join trade unions, collectively organise, even in spite of um, obviously decline in union density and membership, and laws, labour laws that actually actively restrict, um, you know, workers' ability to mobilise. Um, in, in the form of trade unions. So I think that is also really important to ameliorate some of the concerns arising from hyper-dependence and hyper Exit and voice. Um, it's not new, some of you may have read Hirschman's uh, work um, in the 70s about exit and voice and the trade-offs um, between the two. So the situation is a disgruntled worker, um, whether they could, you know, in terms of showing their discontent, they can either leave the employment relationship and go to another employer who will offer better, um, better benefits or, or higher wages, or they can join a trade union um, in order to, um, you know, um, at least in order to um, convey their discontent of that in, in that employment relationship. So seen as a bit of a trade-off, but um, I argue that um, you know in situations of hyper-dependence and hyper-precarity. What you get is a lack of both. So there's not even a trade-off. Um, you can't exit the employment relationship unless you want to be deported, and um, it's really difficult to, um, you know, go to a labour tribunal to claim, you know, um, unpaid wages or to trade uh, to join a trade union because the employer has this enormous control over your migration status. And so, um, in in that situation of hyper-dependence and hyper you don't have both. And so, I think you know, as a starting point, it's not too much to us. You're not saying you should give, um, you know, um, temporary migrants, you know, the right to be, uh, you know, a permanent resident. Um, my starting point is that if we accept these programs as they are in terms of they're here to stay, what is sort of at least the sort of minimum threshold that, um, you know, we, we owe to these workers, um, at least from a labor law perspective, okay? And I think excellent voice is really, um, is is at least the minimum that we can give them. uh, And that has implications for reforming the current schemes. So let's take the 457 visa as an example. You can also look at other schemes, domestic worker visas in this country. That's even worse, it ties them directly to the employers that bring them into this country. And they're only allowed to be here for six months. Um, So uh, 457 visa is actually a better in terms of because it's targeted for skilled workers and it gives them the opportunity um, but not the guarantee that they can become permanent residents one day. Um, in terms of immediate solutions, um, based on this excellent voice um, sort of guiding principle, um, some of the things we can change immediately about these programs, other than get rid of them, is first, first of all detach your resident status from an employment employer sponsorship. So let's take the four, five, seven visa. You know, my ability to live in Australia, say for the three or four years of my visa, should not be dependent on that employer sponsorship. Um, and if, if I need to be constantly engaged in you know some sort of job, otherwise you know you might think, well, maybe I just leave the employment relationship after six months, and then just bum around for like the you know three three years or so. Um, obviously, from Australia's perspective, it's not fulfilling the labour market needs that. Um, I as an academic could, um, could could provide in addressing really what is the main rationale of these schemes which address, which is to address labour market shortages. But I think it's important to be able to say um, to, to be able to design the scheme so that I'm not um, conf- I'm not hyper-dependent high- on that uh, original sponsor that um, you know upon which my visa is based. And so I should be able to have the right to live in Australia and go to another sponsor without any sort of 28 days restrictions on when I need to leave the country once I'm terminating. Um, I should have either a longer period, say three months, or um, I'm able to, uh, for example, move to another sector. So that's the second point, is that rather than tying it to a particular um, employer, we we can say, you know, okay, let's have a look at the shortage list for these sort of programs. I'm an academic. Maybe I can move into I say hairdressing is on the shortage list. Just hypothetically, um, I might have a passion for hairdressing. You know, um, I think maximizing the freedom as a worker for me to go into to choose the work that I want to do is really important. And I would advocate that um, in expanding my ability to exit employment relationships, it would need a degree of mobility across. Occupations and sectors, as well as employers. Um, so, um, another thing that could be um, reformed is enforcing employment rights. So often, um, we see it in this country as well. Sort of labor inspectorates um, under the pressure of you know the government, they are now also involved in sort of indirectly immigration controls. Okay, so say they, um they're. You know, uh, they're they're going into a ethnic restaurant because often they're kind of targets of immigration home home office kind of um, um, raids. Um, they will, you know, they would look at okay, um, are the employees paying wages, etc., complying with labour law? But there's an ulterior motive, which is actually let's check whether the workers actually have proper immigration status. And so um, I think it's really important that we have a legal firewall between the enforcement of labour laws and enforcement of immigration laws, which have become intertwined because immigration law has certainly taken political importance in the day and age that we live in, in this country and in Australia, and um, if we are talking about enforcing labour rights, um, it's important to um, disentangle the actual enforcement mechanisms uh, from immigration enforcement. Collective organisation, as I highlighted, is very important for voice, um, the ability to to join um, trade unions and to to engage in collective bargaining. Um, Intermediaries is also um, a really important area um, that has yet to be um, regulated to the full extent that it should in Australia and the UK, um, because intermediaries play a very big role in temporary labour migration. in the UK, you, some of you may be familiar with the gang le- uh, Gangmasters Licensing Authority. Um, unfortunately, that authority, the powers have, um, that, that authority basically is in charge of um, uh, food processing and agricultural sectors, where you find a lot of migrant workers in the UK. Um, and it, it's, it's basically a, um, a licensing for the intermediaries involved in these particular sectors. Um, and social protections is about social security. So employment-related social securities, the ability to transfer your pensions from um, Australia to say back to the Philippines or India or China. Uh, And finally, I think this is the most contentious uh, proposal, is um, the provision of a more secure migration status. So under these schemes, these guest worker schemes, often your um, visa is renewed. Um, And so you're in this sort of limbo of not like knowing whether you're going to be able to apply for permanent residence um, as some programs allow and some programs definitely don't allow that Um, so you know the proposition is that um, I think under all these guest worker programs provided that you made a certain number of years um, I think it should be um, normatively justifiable that um, you should be able to apply for permanent residence Of course, where you draw the line in terms of how many years that should be, um, that is debatable. Uh, But I would say that while they're always in this temporary state of uncertainty, um, temporary migrant workers under these programs are unable to plan for the future. So giving them a more secure migrant status um, may be a way forward, because that inability to plan for the future in terms of their life projects um, would be... Um, a, a factor that could undermine their choice of employment and also the control that employers have over um, these migrants. So in the four-five-seven visa scheme, classic example was the employer would promise the four-five-seven visa holder, "You'll get permanent residency once you know, um, you know, like just basically put up with crappy conditions um, because after five years, um, I'm going to renew your visa and you're going to be able to apply for the permanent residency." So, that control of the employer over the precarious migrant status of these workers, um, you know, has been uh, flagged as a um, source of hyperdependence and hypercarity. So these are just some short proposals, um, but of course, I would now invite you to think about, okay, I've presented you the legal and regulatory challenges of these schemes, and where I'm coming from as a labour lawyer, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, Now that you're a bit more familiar with these guest worker schemes, you may have some interesting questions about um, sort of the ethical dimensions. So um, I look forward to your questions. Thank Thank you.